While we make every effort to broadcast the correct information, we are still learning and by no means are White Coat Warriors hosts or guests acting as healthcare physicians or professionals. We will double check the facts presented, but realize that medicine is a constantly changing and complex science and art. We are simply presenting our views and the views of others on our experiences in the healthcare system and will be as evidence-based as possible based on our own experiences. We welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical conditions in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall White Coat Warriors, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates with White Coat Warriors be responsible for damages arising from the use of the podcast or blog. Hello, my White Coat Warriors. It is Rachel Bartholomew, your host of the White Coat Warriors podcast. And I'm delighted to introduce you to our guest today, Sherry Palm. Sherry is the founder and the CEO of the Association for Pelvic Organ Prolapse Support, or APOPS for short, uh, the author of three editions of the award-winning book, Pelvic Organ Prolapse, The Silent Epidemic, an internationally recognized speaker, a pelvic organ prolapse advocate, vaginal and intimate health advocate, key opinion leader, and a prolific writer regarding pelvic organ prolapse, physical, emotional, social, sexual, fitness, and employment quality of life impact. She has also been described as an entire army in one body. And I loved that. I saw that quote and I I had to say it, uh, when it, and I know that is true, uh, because when it comes to her passion and dedication for not just pelvic organ prolapse, but gynecological conditions in general, uh, you are an entire army. Sherry, thank you for being on the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you. Well, Rachel, I'm absolutely delighted to join you today. I'm, I mean, I've been watching your energy as well for some time, and I love your your positive mindset. It, it's priceless. So it's a delight to be here with you today. Oh, thank you, Sherry. Thank you. I So, I mean, we're no strangers to each other. I think when I first started, you know, my work with high IV and, and pelvic health, you were one of the first people to pop up on LinkedIn, and you are just... You share all of the good clinical knowledge that I am like, all right, what's Sherry posting today? What is she going to teach me today? I need to dig into this further. <laughs> I just, I adore the work that you do and how straightforward and amazing you are with putting the the real research out there. And I, I, I appreciate you for that. But as we go into this conversation, I want you to share a little bit with our audience about your journey as a patient and the diagnosis that inspired your mission uh, with APOPS. Well, that's uh, any different than it is for most advocates that get into any particular space. It's life experience. You know, either, either you yourself experience something that moves you or you know someone close to you that does. And in my case, um, I had the beginning of my journey was actually back when I was 30 years old. I was diagnosed with MS and was told wheelchair bound short time frame. I didn't find that acceptable. I've always been very active, worked a ton of hours or went to school and worked at the same time, whatever, just like so many people do. And so for me, it's like I have to find answers. There has to be something out there I can do to prevent this from progressing. And I did find answers myself. It took me a few years, but I did find answers to anyone that would meet me, would know, I, I don't even, you can't even tell I have MS, you know, those that have MS might notice a few subliminal little flags, but in general, people wouldn't even recognize it. So moving forward, I was extremely proactive about maintaining all aspects of my health, not just to control the MS. And when the whole women's health thing flourished, for me, I was deeply embedded in that. I had difficulty uh, getting pregnant, I well, I never had periods when I was younger. I, I started when I was 15. I had a life period at 17. Went on the pill at 18. Otherwise, it's like I could get pregnant and not even know it. <laughs> you know, I don't have any periods. So how do I know what's going on here? Forwarding to my early 30s when I was trying to get pregnant and I couldn't get pregnant. You know, I started digging more deeply into women's health and to try and understand better the whole big picture. And I was so lucky that my gynecologist knew 
the top fertility specialist in the country. She was right in my backyard. So I got in to see her relatively quickly and she diagnosed adenomyoma or I had um, polycystic ovaries. I had luteophase defect and there was some blood condition that predisposed me to early miscarriage. And there was, there was four things altogether. I don't remember what the other one was. And so um, on my way to pregnancy, uh, I had my son and, and then into my late thirties, I started to notice some symptoms which I now know are symptoms of pelvic organ problems. Back then, I didn't have any idea what was going on. I had some problems with uh, vaginal pressure. I, I was chronically constipated my whole adult life. I mean, that was, that's, that was my norm. So I didn't think anything about that. I had that, but that wasn't unusual for me. And I couldn't keep a tampon in. And so uh, I didn't, you know, it was annoying at the time. I didn't really thought it meant anything. I need a bigger tampon, you know, I don't know, you know, I didn't really pay that much attention to it because I work a lot of hours. So the year before I had a hysterectomy on my 40th birthday, the year before that I was in so much pain. I looked like I was five months pregnant. My, my gut was so distended. And so, um, I finally, that my gynecologist said, well, you know what we need to do an exploratory here and find out what exactly is going on in there. And I had uh, one over over was covered with cysts. Adenomyosis is where that tissue goes in instead of with endometriosis, it goes outside that the vaginal area, outside the tubes. Um, with adenomyosis, it goes inside. So your whole uterus is covered in scar tissue. And mine was huge. So it was like three times as normal size. She did the surgery, left my cervix in there. And I felt better a week after surgery. It was abdominal surgery. I felt better a week after surgery than I had felt for the whole year before that. I was thrilled to have that hysterectomy. It's like, I just, I felt so much better. So then moving forward, you know, I just, I kept on with my, you know, self-health, women's health, check your boobs, you know, for lumps and all that stuff. I did all the right stuff, went in for my pelvic exams and, and crossed all my, my T's and dotted all my I's. Again, working the 60 hour week, as women, we, when we go to the bathroom, we tend to run in, drop trowel, urinate, wipe, pull up fast, and we're back on the road again. And I started to notice that there was like a, I felt like a lump down there. As women, we don't take a handheld mirror and look down below. And every woman should. It's critical. You need to know what your normal is. We look as different on the bottom as we all look on our, in our faces. We're all different. So for me, I had never done that, you know, and, and I got the handheld mirror out to see what, because I felt that lump down there and it felt like it was at my vaginal opening. And I was pretty shocked to find a walnut-sized lump coming out of my vagina. And I'm really fortunate that my best friend at that point in time was my healthcare practitioner. I emailed her and I said, okay, so I've got this. It looks like a lump coming out of my vagina, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, come on, we'll do a pelvic exam. So I went over to her office and she did a pelvic exam. And she said, you have pelvic organ prolapse. I can fit you with a passerie. And if you're not happy with the pessary, then I'll refer you to a great urogynecologist that I know in our area. And then um, I went home and did what most women would do. I hit Dr. Google. And I discovered very quickly, every thread that I pulled up, everyone that I opened said the same thing. It's so common. It's so common. It's so common. Extremely common. Very common. They all said the same thing. Now I'm smoking hot, ticked off. I am raging furious. Like, how can this be so common? And I've never heard of it. That's ridiculous. The more I read, the matter I got. At that point in time, this was 2007, the stat used for prevalence was 3.3 million women in the US. It didn't give a global stat, that was just the US. It made no sense. I knew, I, I just kept digging and digging and finding more articles and research and reading more. And, and the more I read, the matter I got. And I thought, you know what? If I don't know this stuff, women don't know this stuff. I've got to do something to change that. So I know I'll write a book and then I'll get the book out there. And then all these women will learn about pelvic organ prolapse and the whole dynamic will change. What a moron. <laughs> I thought it was so simple. It's just, maybe, I'll just write a book. You know, I don't know what made me think I could do that. And so I gathered um, more and more research and started to take notes and so on. And then about I'm on a short time, within a, a, a couple of weeks after um, I was diagnosed, about the same time that I knew I had to do something to change the dynamic, um, I realized that the pessary was not going to be a good fit for me. 
So I thought this is going to work. I need something that's that's going to be more permanent. And I'm of that personality type that is like just fix it. That's just how my personality is. So I, I got a hold of Deb, and she said, "Okay, I'll, I'll send you over to this urogynecologist." And I didn't get in to see her. This was in uh, December. I didn't get in to see her until about the third week of January. When I went in there, she the difference between what a diagnostic clinician does and a urogynecologist, which is the fellowship trained gynecologist, subspecialist in, in the space, plays a part what they do. A, a, a diagnostic clinician will say you have prolapse. The urogyne tells you the grade of severity, the types, there's five types of prolapse. So they tell you the grade, the types and the grades of severity that you have. When they typically have more than uh, one type of prolapse at the same time. So it's important to have all of the layers of information. So I saw the urogyne and she was, is fabulous. I, I adore her. She did the exams. She took her time with me. And at the end of the examination, we went into her consult room and she's okay, so bring the questions on, let's go. And I had them all written down. I was a good patient, wrote all my questions down so I wouldn't forget any. We were in there at the consult room for probably 45 minutes. And she answered all of my questions completely. And at the end of the Q&A session, she says, so do you have any, any other questions? And I said, well, just one. I don't understand how it's possible that this condition is so common and I've never heard of it. And she looked me right in the eye and she said, Sherry, well, we won't talk about this. And in my head, I'm going, the hell they won't. <laughs> you watch and learn. They're going to talk about this. That little fizz of anger continued through the early parts of the journey. And it wasn't anger at anything or anybody in particular. It was just anger because this just was an unacceptable situation. We scheduled this. She says, well, let's see, for surgery, she says, well, why don't you go home? And this is in, in uh, January. She says, go home, take your time through spring. I told her I was going to write a book and she went, oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Whatever, you know, <laughs> just go home, work on your book and then come back and see me in the fall and we'll schedule surgery. And I said, tooties, I don't think so. Fix me yesterday. She's like, okay, if that's what you want, that's what we'll do. So she scheduled me surgery a couple of weeks out from that. And it went on from there. During the period of time between when I was diagnosed and when I had my surgery, I did all my research, gathered all my notes, gathered all my papers. I didn't do any exercising for those 12 weeks. So I got the book done. And then I went on to try and find a publisher. I mean, I didn't know anything about writing books. I didn't know anything about formatting. I didn't know anything about publication process, any of that. So I had to learn all that stuff stage by stage. And it took me through, if memory serves, it was September or October before I found a publisher. And you go through, you know, you send off your, your queries and you get all these reject letters back. And they're like, you want to talk about what? <laughs> you know, are you crazy? And it just, it didn't go anywhere until I, I found a publisher finally. And it turns out that that was actually a vanity publisher. I didn't know that at that time, um, but it got that first edition published. And that was in 2009, April, 2009, when that happened, I was about maybe about 18 months or so into the book flow, marketing that book. When the light bulb came on, if I wanted to really effectively help women, if I wanted to create awareness for this condition and shift the status quo, I should find a nonprofit. I knew nothing about 501c3, so I had to go down that rabbit hole and learn about that. And I was very blessed that right here in Milwaukee, uh, Marquette University has got a great pro bono program that people can apply to to have their, their legal team, their, their law school, assist you with that process of 501c3 application. So they got me through. I applied. They accepted me. We got through that process, and I had my 501c3 established. And along the way, learn how to build the websites and, you know, the social, learn about social media, all the stuff that comes with what we do. And then um, the rest is just kind of history. It's classic grassroots. We now have just over 22,000 women in our closed patient support forum. That's a Facebook page. And there's also commentary. We've had open APOPs forum. Is, it's not really a forum. It's just a page. But women do talk about their prolapse on that page as well. There's around 1,200 women on that, uh, or um, 2,000 women on that page too. But within our, our support forum, so it's 22,000 plus women in 177 countries. I'm amazed every day at how women come in and they're so stigmatized and they're depressed and they're so rattled and they just don't know where to turn because they don't have any information. And then we watch them gradually educate themselves. And the, the support form is women to women support. It's not APOPs. I mean, I go in there and I, I supply information for them. But the core of that space isn't me doing anything. It's not APOPs doing anything. It's women doing everything, talking to each other, sharing their journey, sharing their information. It's gold. It's just gold. So whether a woman is 15 
and has a comorbid condition uh, like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which gives her weak tissue. And that's why she's got POP. She hasn't even been pregnant yet. She's got POP. Whether it's that woman or someone who's in her 80s, was considering having her vagina sound shot because she just can't deal with this prolapse stuff anymore. She's got another health condition that says she shouldn't have surgery. Um, and everything in between there, how they talk to each other, how they communicate with each other is what is the education process for women. And it is the emotional support that comes along with that, also gold. They go hand in hand, it's gold. We do run a tight ship. Um, I've got a lot of rules that women have to adhere to. We don't tolerate any bashing. A lot of those, those forms have got women to women bashing, and I hate that. I, I have no tolerance for that. So we run a type ship. I've got some amazing, priceless volunteers that help us do what we do and monitor that space. And, and we also uh, screen requests to come in before they come in. We don't let everybody in. You get screened first to assure that you're in there for the right reason, and it keeps it a nice, clean, well-oiled space. So. That's the big journey. And now it's just a matter of, um, I'm looking at actually my fourth book right now, and I'm hopeful, this one's not, it's gonna have a different title. It's gonna have a more, it's gonna have a refresh of the POP information. It's going to have, I should say it's going to, it does have updates on new procedures, both non-surgical and surgical. And it also has got a strong sub-flavor of women's health empowerment. So I'm excited for this for this one. I, I'm gonna push this one hardcore when it comes out. Hopefully by the end of this year, that, that's the goal. Oh my goodness, okay. A lot to unpack here. I want to unpack a couple of different things. I've been writing it down. I've been going off of my questions now because I want to unpack more things. The first thing that struck me with what you just shared is all the way back to the beginning of the MS diagnosis. And I love how you just, you're like, it doesn't even look like I have MS. I, you know, I just dealt with it. And like, you just brushed that off. Like it was the easiest thing that you've ever went through. <laughs> I'm, I'm like flabbergasted, but um, I'm interested to understand. I ask you this question because you've personally lived through these things. So I, and I know how in tune you are with your body now going through all the things that you went through dealing with the pelvic organ prolapse and all of these things that are almost like a, a slash on your record of like, of course, you're going to have pelvic organ prolapse. You have breasts and of course you have, pelvic, you know, you yeah, have that. Right. Is it a compounding effect of a hysterectomy and having babies and MS and these four things that is it just compounding to make it worse? Do you have a feeling that one thing really added to that kind of, I'm going to have POP? What's your kind of feeling in the journey that you went through leading up to dealing with this? That is an excellent, excellent question. And it, it's, this holds true, not just for me, but for women in general. There are so many causal factors. I mean, we talk about childbirth and menopause being the two leading causals of pelvic organ prolapse. However, and it's a big however, there are a lot of other causal factors. When we go through life, it's just your lifestyle and your behaviors alone without bringing in the other coexisting health conditions that you've got. Where you work at, you know, the heavy lifting, you're picking up your children all the time. You've got three little kids and they're heavy and you're picking up from a dead sleep. And I mean, there are just so many factors here. And so for me, it absolutely did. I had, it was either seven or eight causal check marks. And so no shock, I had POP, but it usually comes down to one occurrence that was the big bang and everything else just kind of like stacks up and makes, makes it more amplified. And for me, I think what it was is that my childbirth was really, I had a very healthy pregnancy. My doctor was actually on me to, to gain a couple more pounds. I gained like 27 pounds and, and he's like, gain more weight. That baby's not big enough yet. And I'm like, I crave fruits and vegetables. I don't know what to tell you. I'm the chocoholic, you know, when I was craving all this healthy stuff. I'm like, I'm, I'm drinking shakes, you know, I'm trying to get some extra calories. My, my son was only six pounds, 11 ounces when he was born. And so he's a small baby. And so it wasn't like I had this traumatic childbirth. I mean, I had nine hours of labor and then I had him. And yes, I was 35 when I had him, but still, I mean, it wasn't like it was anything. It wasn't a, a long labor. And when you get into the second stage of labor, that is where the POP intersect comes in because that's when that baby's head is pushing on the nerves in that vaginal canal. And the longer that baby's head is pushing on those nerves, the more likely there's a chance of nerve damage occurring in that pelvic floor area. So that's where your most significant risk factor comes in or the most common risk factor comes in with childbirth. 
certainly if the baby won't come out and they're using forceps or suction delivery. Now that's a whole different bucket of worms there. And that is a whole different podcast because <laughs> it's too in-depth to get into here. So for me, it wasn't the childbirth thing. The chronic constipation, my whole adult life, probably back to my childhood, if, I'm, if I really had a way to think back that far, with your chronic constipation, you're pushing down, you're pushing down, trying to get that stool out, and that's pushing everything down. My mom ha- had POP as well. At the time she had the surgery, she just said, well, they're just tying her bladder rope, and I didn't know what that meant at that point, so I didn't connect the dots with the hereditary factor. For me, the biggie, I mean, MS certainly is a factor, the weak muscle tissues. The biggest factor for me, I think, was I spent three summers landscaping a 400-foot-long and about 8-foot-wide flower bed, which included shoveling gravel on top of this cloth I'd laid down to try and keep the weeds and make it still decorative-looking. And also, I'm a rock a rock nut. I love pretty rocks. I had some boulders that we brought back from northern Wisconsin. I wanted them positioned in a certain way around the flower bed. So when I couldn't get the front end loader bucket to, to them, I would take my body and I would just like wrap my body around the boulder and go, you know, like kind of do the drag the boulder around thing to get it where I want it. And I'm guessing between those two things, especially the shoveling of the gravel, because that's heavy lifting, it's repetitive, and it would it went on for three summers. That probably was my big marker for POP, I think, that significant heavy lifting. So everyone was a little bit different, you know, and, and again, for most women, I mean, they don't really recognize that, you know, after they have this baby, there's something different going on there because they're busy taking care of their babies. <laughs> they're exhausted. Got other kids now, they're really exhausted. We tend to be hardest on ourselves because we're not really cognizant of what's happening with our bodies. And that's the one thing that it amazes me that I didn't figure out the POP sooner because of the MS. I was so in tune. I was completely in tune with my body and it's still light bulbs in one. It's like, okay, that area your body doesn't count. You know, whatever, put it away for now. You're not using it. You're not playing, whatever, you know, so just, you know, get on and do your, your regular stuff. It's important for women to always, well, everyone, not just women, but listen to your body, listen to what it's telling you, listen to those messages. And, and if you've got and it's not just pain. Pressure sensations are very significant as well. Burning sensations, and not that that's tied to POP, but I mean, just any sensation, tune in. Why is that there? Is it there every day? Is it there only at three o'clock in the afternoon? Trying to figure out the puzzle pieces and then kind of leads you to where you need to go to address whatever your needs are. Yeah. Interesting. You wonder if it's because women, we, you know, you see those like TikTok videos of like, you know, women will be able to do some crazy thing because our center of gravity is in our hips and that's kind of where we lift from. And that's where all of our kind of everything is stored versus men are more upper body. Maybe we have some of these more pelvic based symptoms than, you know, men will in prolapse and that type of thing. So it's very interesting. You say that it, um, it it sparks some curiosity, but in terms of those symptoms that, you, you know, you're talking about what are some of the prolapse symptoms that you often see that are common? Well, let me look at my cheat sheet here because um, <laughs> I mean it's it's it, there's a it's a pretty extensive list, and the one to me that's the most pronounced is is obviously that vaginal tissue bulge, which I kind of describe it as it, it just feels like your guts are coming out because they are. <laughs> you know, some women described it as like feeling like you're sitting on a ball. For me, it was I didn't notice that sensation. I just noticed that when I was wiping, when I would urinate, that there was something bulging out there. So um, I didn't really have that ball sensation. Urinary incontinence, of course, is extremely, it's probably the most common uh, POP symptom. We tend to think of urinary incontinence as a condition, whether it's urge or stress or mixed, coil, whatever kind of incontinence we're talking about. We tend to think of it as a condition when the reality is, is it's a symptom. Your body's telling you something else is going on, you know, that you need to know about. And what's causing that incontinence is, is the bottom line. Along with the incontinence, there's also urine retention. And believe me, that's just as frustrating, if not more so, than the incontinence because you have that urge to pee and you can't go. It won't come out. And that's because that urethra is crimped like a hose on the inside and it's blocking that flow. Just like if you bent that hose in half, same thing happens inside with the urethra. And because your organs are displaced, now the pee can't get out. And when it happens at three o'clock in the morning, it really is irritating. <laughs> you know, you don't even want to wake up. You want to sleep, sleep, walk to the bathroom and sleep, pee and sleep, walk back to bed. And that's it. And so you can't do that when you've got the prolapse related urine retention. Chronic constipation, as I mentioned, is extremely common. 
and extremely frustrating for women. You know, they, they, the doctors will tell them, you know, eat more fiber and drink more water and get more exercise. That's not getting the job done. So um, fecal incontinence is not really, really, really common, but it's relatively well recognized in the space. Pain with intercourse is a, a big topic of conversation in our space, a big, big topic. And women that experience that is so frustrating because their partners will often dismiss that pain and not believe them. It's, they think that, not tonight, honey, I've got a headache syndrome. And it's not. They literally have pain. There can be lack of sexual sensation completely. And that's that the dead nerves down on that end down there. And that could be just because of organs pushing on nerves that they shouldn't be pushing on. It, it could be residual from your childbirth experience, you know, but the bottom line is that if you're not having any sensation, that has a big impact to relationships, obviously, and, and that whole intimate layer. You may have rectal, vaginal, back, or pelvic pain, any combination of those, and that will vary depending on which types of prolapse you have. You can have pain or pressure with any, any of those areas. The last one is the tampons pushing out, which I didn't even realize was a symptom until I was well into this space. And I read a study that indicated that was a symptom. I'm like, ding, 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 light bulb. When I was like, okay, now I get it. That's why those tampons were pushing out. I had prolapse back in my late thirties before I had my hysterectomy. So that tells you that I had prolapse. It was at least 15 years, probably more than that before it was diagnosed. That's relatively common. And when women reach menopause and your estrogen levels drop, that is a magnifier of your prolapse issues. And it's, again, the, one of the leading causal factors. So you may have all these other things going on. And not until you reach, and that's where I was at, I was in that menopausal time frame. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to dive into some of them a little bit deeper conversations. But the one thing I do want to highlight really quickly is pessaries. You brought this point up. What is that? <laughs> Passery is um, for women that know what a diaphragm is. It's kind of a, it's kind of similar to that in shape. Some of them are similar to that in shape. Uh, these are insertable devices that they're they're made of medical grade silicone. This device, there are all different shapes, all different sizes. It's about 20, 20, 22 different styles of pessaries, different shapes of pessaries, and because we're as different in shape and size on the inside as we are on the outside, it's like a, a fitting process as well as which type of pessary is the right pessary for you. So what these are is uh, some of them are removable yourself and some doctors have to insert and remove um, devices that are inserted into the vagina to support your pelvic organs. You typically, when you're first diagnosed, most the primary diagnosing practitioners will fit you with a pessary by and large. It, it's kind of like a, a, a test one to see if the pessary will work for you, if you're happy with the pessary. A lot of women are happy with the pessary initially. And some there are there's a small group of women that will use a pessary for the rest of their lives. They never want surgery, and that's fine. But the, most women, by and large, the majority of women will use a pessary for around two years, and then they'll say, enough, just fix it, and they want to move to surgery. I think it's important for women to know that that pessary learning curve is a priceless, priceless time frame where they learn about their body. They learn about their body sensations. They learn about how this makes this feel and makes you so keenly aware of that whole pelvic cavity that it makes you much more informed much more aware of what your needs are, what your wants are moving forward as far as treatments go. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. Thank you for that. I want to dive into some of the, the deeper stuff when it comes to the multi-layered complexities of this. And, you know, you talk about pelvic organ prolapse affecting quality of life, and you have all of these categories, but I want to first start with one specific category. And I think something that you said really hit home for me. And I hear this again and again, and again with women is I have too much to do. I've got too much to do. I don't have time to do this. I have all these things going on. And I personally feel this as well. You have this ultimate type A go-getter mentality. You want to go out and you want to solve the problems of the world. But yet we almost roll over 
when it comes to solving our own problems with our own health and putting that first. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on like, why as women do we do this to ourselves? Why do we, why do we prioritize everything else? But, but the one thing that we're fighting for, but can't seem to do it for ourselves. <laughs> you are so spot on with this. Yes. I couldn't agree more. We do tend to shoot ourselves in the foot. We feel that we need to keep everything nice and orderly and functioning and keep our, our families all well-organized and well-oiled. And, and you gotta, you're juggling the, the work stuff with one hand and you're juggling the family stuff with the other hand. And you don't allow yourself that time to slot in for your own health. And we clearly need to reboot our batteries because we are type A's. We're going, going, going all the time. That usually doesn't happen until we crash and burn. And I wish I had some secret sauce or some divine thoughts to share with you on how we can fix this because it's a huge big deal. I know I have, keep in mind that I'm, I'm much older than you and it's taken me some time to get to this page, but I got to the point where I was like, you know what? You need to take 10 minutes out every morning, just 10 minutes to meditate, just 10 minutes, just be still. You don't have to become a meditation guru, but um, just 10 minutes of calm, just you, no dogs running around, you're barking. No boyfriends or husbands tapping on the shoulder saying, where is the coffee? It's all, I can't find the can, you know, or, or the kids, you know, have to be rushed off to school. Find that time frame. doesn't matter. For me, it's in the early morning. Um, whatever that, where that 10 minutes is that you can slot it in, slot that 10 minutes in, give yourself, give yourself that gift. They say you're not, you're supposed to make your brain go empty when you're meditating. I think that's a bunch of hoo-ha. Let your brain go where it's going to go, you know, and you may still be thinking work, you know, but try and have a vision you can stick in your brain to brush the work, the family, the bills, all the crap out. You could try either just listening to the sound of your breath coming in and out of your throat. It kind of makes you, by planting something in your head, it makes you not think about the other stuff that's bapping away in your brain all the time. And the other thing that I do for myself, and this is a hard one to encourage women to do, because it's just my own personal thing. When the MS was really bad, and when it was bad, it was really, really bad. I made myself start exercise and I, five days a week because I knew that, that there was a good chance I was going to need to do whatever I could to shore up that muscle tissue to help me get through the rough patches. And so I started that habit back when it was, when it was things were really bad, bad. And I've maintained that practice throughout the rest of my life all these decades. That is the one thing that I do that, and the meditation is attached to because I do them back to back. The one thing that I do that's just for me. And that's how I enable myself to think of it. It's not like, okay, oh, I have to go exercise. Blech. You know, I don't, I, I don't go there. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm conscious of my breathing. I've got some music that I like. It becomes such a, a ritual after time. It's no different than brushing your teeth. You don't think about brushing your teeth. You pick up the toothbrush, you slap the toothpaste down there and you give it a go. And that's it. And that's kind of how the exercising is for me because I've done it for so long. It also enables you to recognize when parts of your body aren't as functional as they should be. Sure. Those are some great suggestions. And I know there's a book out there that's like, you got to do what you just start with one minute a day and mm -hmm. get to that and it can become a pattern, right? And like you said it, I love the analogy of it's like brushing your teeth. It's just something that you do and you don't even think about it. And this leads into kind of, you know, you repeat all the time, stay calm and strong, getting through that anxiety and the anger of being first diagnosed. But that kind of leads into these quality of life pieces that you talk about. And you talked a little bit about fitness, the emotional, but you've got sexual, you've got social, you've got physical, you got employment in there. And I think it's really interesting, you know, you focus on this quality of life thing because it is so important and you don't realize until you go through it personally, the impact of that on your every single day and every single waking moment and how you deal with your life moving forward. And one thing that's been so frustrating for me with high IV is quality of life is a big function of this. And, you know, I get pushback saying, well, if it's not life or death, it's not that important. Right. And right. yet, right, Dick. Why, Dick. why can't life be optimized from a quality of life standpoint? So talk to me a little bit about these categories and the impact of this and why it's so important to, to focus on quality of life. 
realistically, if we are not optimizing our quality of life, you know, we're, we're, what's the point? I mean, what is the point of, of even being here? You, know, you have to have some joy. You have to have some pleasure in life. And, and when there are roadblocks that are in the way of any aspect of quality of life, that's just it's a really bad thing. On the physical side, obviously, there's a, a lot of different physical manifestations of prolapse. The most typical thing for women, I think, on, on that layer is, first of all, that acceptance that, that, yeah, I'm really experiencing this. It's not in my head. Some patients are literally told, you know, they, they do certain tests, their diagnostic side is not well educated about prolapse. And so sometimes patients are, I mean, you know, the chronic constipation is a classic example. They come in and they complain about this chronic constipation, which is because they have prolapse, they have a rectal seal. But they're giving the wrong kinds of tests. And, and then it's, they're saying, well, your tests all came back fine. There's nothing wrong with you. It's all in your head. And how does that impact women's self-esteem, which is the bottom line for all of these quality life impacts, that self-esteem is huge. Women need to, to trust that they're feeling what they think they're feeling. And know that if you're a primary care practitioner, gynecologist, whatever you see, whoever you see, isn't finding the answers to whatever symptoms you're sharing with him or her, and don't assume that it is in your head. A physical manifestation is very, very real. Trust yourself, trust your body if it's sending you a signal. So the physical stuff is big. I just know that because there's five types of prolapse, because there's four grades of severity, your symptoms are not only going to be very variable, but they may change from day to day. When you have three days in a row when you're feeling the same symptom, and then that fourth day the symptom is gone, don't think it was all in your head. Don't think that you were imagining it, you know, that it's a real thing that you need to explore there. So that's on the physical side. And the emotional side, we did kind of touch base on that. And, and again, for me, it was just anger. That was it. I wasn't, I wasn't distraught. I wasn't frustrated. I wasn't any of that stuff. I was just, I was just ticked off. Women go through such an emotional journey with this, and especially young women. Women that are in their, their teens, their 20s, even their 30s. They're so young, and, and to have something this devastating happen to your body that has such an impact on your intimate life, and we'll get into that a little bit deeper in a second here, it just it makes you feel dirty. It makes you feel icky. I actually captured, I've got a post that's in uh, our article I wrote, and then also a, a social media post. I asked women, how does POP make you feel? I did this in the forum. And they came out of the woodwork. I mean, it took me a couple hours to sift through all this one word. I said one word only, one word only to sift through all the answers to get the duplicates out. They're devastated. They're absolutely devastated. And, and whether it's at the physical, emotional, social, sexual, fitness, employment, quality of life impacts, it doesn't matter which one it is. They all roll back to that self-esteem and how you feel about yourself as a woman, how you feel about yourself as a person, and how each of these different layers intersects with that is a big deal. Uh, when you physically don't feel well, your self-image is being chastised by yourself. It's like, you know, you can go to work if you really push yourself. And back talking to yourself and, and negative feedback looping to yourself, it's the end game for everyone on the self-esteem side is with emotional stuff. It just drags you down. And once you educate yourself about prolapse and you find answers that you need, all of these layers kind of soften and eventually then they shift away completely. The social, obviously women are embarrassed to go out in public if they have incontinence. Fecal incontinence is 10 times more magnified than the urinary incontinence is. And women that experience either of these in a sexual setting, that's coital incontinence, are completely devastated, completely devastated. It's important to know that whatever quality of life impact you're, you're experiencing, you're not alone. Hugely important. There are other women out there that have gone through what you've gone through or are going to go through what you're going through. There are answers for every layer of this. And certainly they have varying degrees of success depending on your individual situation, your age, uh, your lifestyle, again, your behaviors, and so on. When you're walking this walk, it's critical that you keep an open mind. And try this little blue pill over here and it didn't fix your fecal incontinence. And then you tried eating six apples because they're filled with fiber and that didn't work. You've tried these different things and, and you haven't found a solution to help you on this journey. You need to know you need to keep looking. There is a solution. And someone has gone through what you've gone through. And that's the value of where, where the, um, that support form comes in because you can post a question there and say, hey, this is what happened to me yesterday. What do I do? 
And then you get maybe some suggestions that hadn't occurred to you. The, on the employment side, women that have got prolapse, especially a rectal seal where you can't poop, have it the worst. When you have a rectal seal and you have chronic constipation, the urge is there to poop. You really have the urge to poop, but nothing comes out. And you can go sit in the bathroom at work, you get your 15-minute break, and you've been holding it and holding it and holding it, you know, and, and you finally get your 15-minute break in the afternoon, and you go into the bathroom, and you sit down, and nothing happens. And you're in there the full 15 minutes, and now it's stretched beyond 15 minutes, and your boss is out there going, tick, tick, tick. You're not at your desk. You should be back at your desk by now. And But you don't want to explain to your boss you've got pelvic organ prolapse. You know, that's a whole, you don't want to go there. There's a lot of layers on the employment side that need to be addressed. Um, you see, certainly see signs. Heavy lifting is another issue on the employment side. Women with prolapse, women in general shouldn't be heavy lifting, heavy lifting. We see placards um, in locker room walls, you know, the, the correct way to lift. And that's not appropriate to prolapse. And we're not addressing it from the prolapse side. And so there are layers on the employment side that, that women suffer with and experience. And no one's talking to HR about this. That has to be addressed. That has to be addressed. Every layer has its own bugs to go through. And on the fitness side, I see myself standing with a megaphone in front of women's marathon runs, just squawking at them like, are you wearing a pessary? Because it's like every hard foot strike to the ground, they're jerking everything down. Um, I'm a fitness geek. I exercise five days a week. You know, I do lift weights, but they're only 10 pound baby weights. And they give me just as much muscle tone in my upper body as if I was lifting heavier. I mean, not obviously with the, the professionals, you know, with big bulky, I don't want that stuff anyway. But with fitness, it's so important that you know the rights and the wrongs of what fitness activities to engage in. I highly encourage, obviously, swimming is, is the most optimal because your organs float. You're in the water, you're working all your long muscles in your body, and your organs float. So there's no pressure on your pelvic floor whatsoever. And walking is great. I love speed walking and I highly recommend that because you're still working all your long muscles and there's no hard foot strike. Jogging, you have hard foot strike. Running, you have hard foot strike. The heavy lifting is bad. You're picking up heavy weight. You're pushing everything inside down, that intra-abdominal pressure. The heavier stuff you're lifting, the worse it is for you. And the repetitive nature comes into the picture as well. So knowing the right things in the fitness side to do is critical. Each of these sub layers, they all kind of interweave with each other because we're all unique, because we all have a different, from our start to our end of our day, day flow, we have to be our own best monitors. We can't expect someone else to say, this is what you need to do, because what that person needs to do, what I need to do are probably two different things. So paying attention to what you do throughout your whole day, every day is important and recognizing that I might need to change a couple things here to optimize that pelvic health, but to reduce the risk of it and reduce the risk of it getting worse if I already have it is, is the critical component here. So uh, pay attention to your body, pay attention to your day-to-day your, your -day flow and what you're doing. And if you're walking around, just your posture, if you're walking around and you're slumped, now your guts are pushing down. If you pull your shoulders, look at them sideways in the mirror. And if you pull your shoulders back, just watch how your stomach comes in. That's creating that core support that's really priceless for, for pelvic floor health. So I'm going to lump a, a couple questions together for kind of the final bit. You know, something I hear come up again and again and again is importance of community and importance of that patient perspective for any condition, right? My first turn was a Facebook group that pretty much saved my life when it came to going through what I went through. What is your, if someone's first diagnosed with POP, is the community kind of the first place you say they should begin and they should start to, to look into? Where would you say you would want someone who'd just been diagnosed to turn to? Well, it would be one of two things. I mean, the, the, the Facebook support form is priceless. It is absolutely priceless, but some women aren't on Facebook. And then they can't access it. So it's important to know that there's a ton of information on APOP's website, a ton. There's videos, there's podcasts, there's a POP Info drop-down menu that has got tons of pages on it. I've written a lot of articles. There's an article page on there. I've got YouTube videos. And aside from that, you can also Google pelvic organ prolapse. A specific way that it's, it's of value to you yourself. You could do pelvic organ prolapse symptoms. 
clinical prolapse treatment and know that obviously you can find information that way. But the value of what we have is, is condensed POP information. By coming into the forum, if you can, it enables you to access no matter what age you are, no matter what type of POP you have, uh, whether or not you even know for sure you have POP, it, it gives you access to all of these women. And there are absolutely going to be some women in there that have the exact same dynamic that you have. Getting that one-on-one -on -one information, I've only a couple of times in all these years seen a feed where a woman didn't within 10 minutes have three or four responses on it. And they, they come from everywhere. And it doesn't matter what country you come from. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter how much education you've had or, or what your employment is or how much money you have. Those are all out the window. They're irrelevant in the big picture. This is women to women conversation. So just like we're having this conversation here, it is a matter of, of okay, so you're, you're Googling public record prolapse symptoms, and then you have to read through these, these different studies and papers and so on. You're having a conversation in that forum. And so you ask your question and now three women will comment on it and a woman will ask you a question back. And then the Q&A goes back and forth and it brings up multiple different layers that you may not have even thought about yet, but gets you deeper information value to help you on your journey, help you understand what you need to know. So the experience that a patient went through is something you, you can never Google that. I find it's right. oh, there's right. so many things that can happen that you're just never going to have access to in a, in a Google search versus talking one-on-one -on -one with somebody who's been through it on the daily. Right, right, right. And, and the, the compassion, the compassion aspect of it is priceless too, because you're in this some degree of panic mode because you have something you don't really know anything about. You're experiencing these symptoms. And so having not just the information, but having that empathy as well is, is so valuable. It's so, so valuable. And let me say to you, you know what? Been there, done that. You hang on. It's going to be okay. Just go in a little bit deeper, learn a little bit more about the whole big picture and you'll be fine. It, it's, it's women going in for surgery, same thing. When I happen to be in the perform at the right time and I just happen to see it because I don't spend a lot of time in there, there's no time to do that. But I happen to notice a fever, a woman is going into surgery that day. I'll jump in and I'll just give her that, you know, strong and calm, strong and calm. We're all, we're all, we all have your back, you know, and give them a little bit of extra uh, moral support for that journey. Everybody's scared of surgery. That's just human nature, you know. So voice to voice is priceless. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very good. Well, I'm going to finish off with two final questions. The one I always close with first is why do you think it's important for patients to take health into their own hands? Nobody does it better. No one knows your body like you. No one understands the exact subtleties of the sensations that you're experiencing the way you do. And certainly I have the highest respect for well, all fields, white coat, white collar, blue collar, I don't care what field you're in, a field of practice. Physicians go to school for a long, long time to learn what they learn, but they don't live in your bodies. And so what they're taught in medical school often falls short when it comes to the patient's reality, the symptomology of these conditions, respecting that you know your body better than anyone else does, believing that recognizing that. I mean, that's just priceless to the big picture and will help you get to the, the successful end game sooner rather than later. Speeds your journey. 100%. Amazing. Where can we find you? Where can we find your work, your books, APOPs? Tell us where we can find more information. Okay, probably the easiest way to find, I'm on all the social, well, not all, I'm an old granny, so I don't do all the social medias. You won't see me TikToking. <laughs> I do dance, but not on TikTok. If you Google APOPS, A-P-O-P-S, which again stands for the Association for Pelvic Organ Prolapse Support, all kinds of stuff will come up. If you Google my name, Sherry Palm, S-H-E-R-R-I-E-P-A-L-M, all kinds of stuff will come up. If you, I mean, either those will get you there the fastest and and there are links on APOP's website to the social media feed. So we've got, I've got a LinkedIn connection, which is where we can be connected. There's Facebook page and open one. If you don't want to get into the forum, the closed forum, there's also the closed patient support forum, which you can access. You can Google pelvic organ prolapse support and it, it will probably come up. 
but you can also access a link on the homepage of the APOPS website to get to it as well. And it's not just push the button and you get in. We have a screening process to assure the safety and security of women within our space. So I've got a YouTube page. If you Google one of those things, APOPS or Sherry Palm, you'll, you'll find our stuff out there. And uh, just know that there's tons and tons of good information out there about pelvic organ prolapse. And like we were talking, the most significant value is finding a woman to discuss it with and to talk about your, your concerns, whatever, and get it out. And that may, you may not be comfortable doing it on social media. And if that's the case, it's okay. Find a friend, ask a friend if she's ever heard of pelvic organ prolapse until you find a friend that says, yes, I had surgery for that, or yes, I'm wearing a pessary. And then you have someone to talk to about it. So that, that is priceless. And on, on the book side, um, the title of my, my first three books was Pelvic Organ Prolapse, The Silent Epidemic. The most recent one is the third edition. Currently working on uh, another book and I hope to have that up by the end of the year. It will have a different title. I'm not gonna reveal the title right now because I'm keeping it under wraps to make sure it doesn't get snagged up by somebody else. So um, uh, that's a work in progress, but just know that any of our social media feeds, you'll find, you'll find our information. Monday through Friday, I'm out there blapping away. So you'll find me. Talking away on very important things that are very, very knowledgeable and informative. So um, <laughs> thank you, Sherry. We're going to keep a, a strong eye out for that book as well by the end of the year. But thank you for sharing everything. Thank you for your holistic approach to things and thinking of things from a very 360 view and not letting any stone, you know, not go unturned, right? I'm going to continue to cheer and read every single LinkedIn post you post every single day. And I hope others will join me, but um, thank you. Thanks for being here and thanks for sharing. Awesomeness. And it's a pure delight. And, and we are so on the same wavelength. I knew this was going to be a great podcast because of that. So thank you for your time, Rachel. I hugely appreciate it. White Coat Warriors is a special presentation limited series from High IV Health. Are you experiencing pelvic health challenges? We are looking for participants for our upcoming focus groups. Sign up and learn more on how High IV Health is helping women down there and everywhere at highiv.com. You can also find us on social media at High IV Health to stay updated on our journey as we break the stigma on pelvic health.